Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, my name is Dr. Suzanne Boyle. I'm a nephrologist at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine, Temple University in Philadelphia. And welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we are going to be reviewing a case of a 68-year-old male with weakness and fatigue. If you're following along in the Beyond the Pearls book, this is case number 12. And it was written by Dr. Rachel Ramirez and Dr. Daniel Martinez. So let's get started. So a 68-year-old male is brought by his wife for worsening weakness and malaise for the past few weeks. He states that he began to feel weak, fatigued, and lightheaded with associated muscle cramps. His wife notes he has been slightly less attentive over the past 10 days, especially when extended family members were visiting. He denies any contacts or recent travel. Okay, so here we are. Let's take a break from this case. Let's think about where we need to go with this complaint. So if someone complains about weakness and fatigue, what should we consider? Generalized weakness and malaise are very common complaints in the primary care setting. And unfortunately, the differential diagnosis for these symptoms is very broad. A shotgun approach by testing everything is not medically appropriate. Instead, a thorough history, physical exam, and placing the patient's symptoms in a clinical context are of utmost importance in proceeding with an evaluation. However, you should keep the broad differential diagnosis in the back of your mind while proceeding with the history and physical so as to make sure you do not miss a significant pathology. If you're following along in the book, Table 12.1 lists a comprehensive list of the causes of weakness and malaise. We could think about the causes in terms of systems involved. These systems include endocrine, with examples like thyroid, adrenal, neurologic, like disorders of nerves and muscles that can cause weakness, such as myositis and demyelinating disorders, electrolyte disturbances. These can include hyponatremia, hypokalemia, and hypercalcemia, the cardiac system. An example could be congestive heart failure and atrial or ventricular arrhythmias infections, which can include chronic or subacute infections, 
that can contribute to malaise and weakness. For example, tuberculosis is a chronically progressive infection that also involves cough, weight loss, night sweats as components. Infectious mononucleosis is notorious for causing fatigue. And HIV in the acute phase can cause fatigue, but is often associated with fever, pharyngitis, and adenopathy. Gastrointestinal disorders like cirrhosis and inflammatory bowel disease can cause fatigue. Hematologic malignant conditions can cause fatigue. So again, this demonstrates how broad the differential diagnosis is. So let's continue to the case. So the patient has a past medical history of hypertension and dyslipidemia. He takes lisinopril, atorvastatin, and aspirin. He has never been screened for any sort of cancer because he would rather not know. He denies any drug allergies and does not take any herbal supplements or vitamins. His past surgical history includes an appendectomy in 1965. He's a retired computer engineer who's been married for 40 years. He drinks two fingers of scotch on Friday nights. He has a 30-pack year smoking history with a quit date of 15 years ago. He served in the Vietnam War and received a blood transfusion due to a combat-related injury in 1971. He has had three adult children, three grandchildren, and two dogs. His hobbies include golfing, sailing, and coin collecting. On review of systems, he reports a slight cough that he attributes to the change of seasons and a recent low-grade temperature. His wife notes an approximate 15-pound weight loss. When this is commented upon, he states that this is probably because he stopped eating ice cream for dessert a few weeks ago. All right, so we have a very comprehensive history now. So what pathologies should we consider based on the history that is provided? There are many classic buzzwords that can be observed when taking a history that should lead you to consider certain pathologies. The more you take a detailed history, the more they and their associated pathologies will become second nature. In this case, if you're following along in the book, Table 12.2 lists some of these buzzwords and the associated pathologic consideration. Here are a few examples of buzzwords. The patient says that he has been suffering with these symptoms for weeks. Weeks indicates a relatively new onset, but not immediate constellation of symptoms. He notes that he is less attentive recently. This can translate into a change in mental status. This indicates that the issue has began to affect his mental acuity. He endorses muscle cramps. His are diffuse and not limited to one muscle group and can suggest a metabolic derangement. He has a history of hypertension and dyslipidemia, which means he's at increased risk for coronary artery disease and cerebral vascular disease. Lisinopril, which is a medication that he takes, can cause hyperkalemia, acute kidney injury in the correct context, and a dry cough. Atorvastatin, which is a medication for dyslipidemia, is often associated with muscle cramps and weakness. Aspirin can cause gastrointestinal ulcers and bleeding, and this can lead to anemia and fatigue. Cough can lead us to consider a pulmonary process like a tumor, tuberculosis, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or a medication side effect, for example, like with lisinopril. And low-grade temperature and weight loss makes us consider malignancy, infections, and other autoimmune disorders. So let's take a look at this patient's physical exam. The patient's blood pressure is 128 over 75. His pulse is 82 beats per minute. His respiratory rate is 12 per minute, and his body mass index is 18. He appears unwell and slightly undernourished, but he is in no acute distress. 
He's awake and oriented to person, place, time, and purpose. His cranial nerves are intact, and he has pink conjunctiva with moist mucous membranes. There is no jugular venous distension, lymphadenopathy, or bruise in the neck. His heart has a regular rate and rhythm without extra heart sounds, murmurs, clicks, or rubs. He does not have a barrel chest, and his lung sounds are clear to auscultation bilaterally. His abdomen is soft with no evidence of hepatosplenomegaly or masses. On rectal exam, he has soft brown stool, a normal-sized and smooth prostate with no abnormal masses. His skin has no tenting, bruising, or rashes. His joints have full range of motion and are without erythema or swelling. He's able to get out of a chair without use of his arm, and he has no motor sensory or coordination deficits. He has no peripheral edema. He has clubbing of his nails, but no dilation of the capillary beds. So how does this physical examination, which is quite thorough, help us with our differential diagnosis, which initially we said was very broad for a chief complaint like fatigue and malaise? So he is normal sight in the vital signs, which point us away from an infectious process, but this is not completely excluded yet. He appears undernourished, and given his age and weight loss history, malignancy is now higher on the differential. However, the lack of diffuse lymphadenopathy and normal prostate exam are reassuring, at least from a diffusely metastatic disease or prostate cancer standpoint. The pink conjunctiva make anemia unlikely. His moist mucous membranes and lack of skin tenting make dehydration or volume depletion unlikely. His normal cardiac exam and pulmonary exam and lack of jugular venous distension or peripheral edema make heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and interstitial lung disease unlikely. His normal musculoskeletal exam, lack of a skin rash, friction rub, or decreased breast sounds, which could be suggestive of a pleural effusion, make a rheumatologic disease less likely as well. His good muscle strength, and normal sensation and coordination make a neurologic disease very unlikely. And lastly, his nail clubbing, in light of his history of smoking and weight loss, makes lung cancer a distinct possibility. So what should we do now? Let's think about what labs we should order next. At this point, his history and physical exam point to some sort of malignancy. Given his specific clinical scenario, he is at greatest risk for lung or colon cancer. But since he has no lymphadenopathy, unlikely significantly anemic, and he is not severely cachectic, it is unlikely that just the malignancy itself is very advanced to the point of causing his symptom of fatigue and malaise. At this point, lung cancer is known to have many metabolic derangements associated with it. So getting a basic metabolic panel is warranted. Since colon cancer is reasonably on the differential diagnosis, it might be metastatic to liver. So ordering a liver profile is appropriate as well. So we send these labs off. Now we review them. If you're following along in our book, this is in table 12.3. On reviewing the lab studies, we appreciate that the serum sodium level is very low at 125 milliequivalents per liter. The serum creatinine is normal at 0.1 milligrams per deciliter. Blood urea and nitrogen is also normal at 10 milligrams per deciliter. Serum calcium is normal at 9.5 milligrams per deciliter. And the liver enzymes are also within normal limits with a normal albumin level and a normal thyroid level. 
So let's think about this low serum sodium, which we know to be hyponatremia. Hyponatremia can be the cause of the fatigue and malaise that this patient is endorsing. Because you were concerned, you explained to him that you'd like to admit him to the hospital for further evaluation and treatment. So, what are the initial steps in evaluating hyponatremia? Traditionally, it is important to order a serum osmolality to confirm that the patient truly has a hypotonic hyponatremia. This confirms that the hyponatremia is not a laboratory artifact, such as can be seen in hyperproteinemia or severe hyperlipidemia, or due to an excess of another osmol, for example, mannitol or glucose. However, these situations are very rare, and most hyponatremia is of the hypotonic variety. Generally speaking, hypotonic hyponatremia is most commonly caused by the action of antidiuretic hormone, also referred to as ADH or vasopressin. This hormone acts on the kidneys to increase free water reabsorption. This increases the ratio of free water to sodium in the body and causes hyponatremia. Therefore, the first step in the evaluation of hyponatremia is to confirm that ADH is the cause of the hyponatremia and that the kidneys are actually actively reabsorbing free water. This is done by measuring serum and urine osmolality. When ADH is acting on the kidneys, the urine osmolality should increase and to be greater than the serum osmolality. This confirms the kidneys are actively concentrating the urine via the action of ADH. However, if the urine osmolality is lower than the serum osmolality, then ADH is not involved in the pathophysiology of hyponatremia in the patient. In this case, there are two alternative causes for hyponatremia. First, the patient can acutely drink so much water that it overcomes the kidney's ability to excrete the free water. This results in an excess of free water relative to sodium, and the patient becomes hyponatremic. This is called primary polydipsia and is generally psychogenic. Secondly, the patient might be chronically eating very little solute each day relative to his free water ingestion. The most abundant urinary solutes include urea, which is the most abundant one, and sodium and potassium salts. A normal diet consists of ingestion of between 600 and 900 milliosms of solute per day. A minimum of daily solute ingestion is required to excrete free water in the urine. If the daily ingestion of protein, which gets metabolized to urea and sodium potassium salts, fall significantly below the normal amount, free water excretion in the urine will be impaired. This will lead to free water retention and thus hyponatremia. A classic example of this scenario is beer potomania. In beer potomania, alcoholics drink large quantities of beer in the absence of other food. Beer largely consists of water and glucose with little or no sodium, potassium, or protein. Therefore, alcoholics may not meet the minimal daily solute ingestion threshold to excrete the free water that they consume. A similar scenario is the tea and toast diet, which consists of carbohydrates and fluid, but little other solutes, in particular protein. Again, both of these would be ADH-independent causes of hyponatremia, low solute intake, and psychogenic polydipsia. In both of these cases, the urine osm would be dilute. 
Obviously, the workup does not stop with confirming that the urine is concentrated or dilute and that ADH is acting on the kidneys. However, you will commonly see people stop the workup at this point and declare that a patient has a syndrome of inappropriate ADH or SIDH. Doing that, in fact, is medically inappropriate, and its stupid clinician will go on to evaluate why ADH is being released, and if it is appropriate, and given the other possible underlying pathologies happening with this patient. Lastly, interpreting urine studies only makes sense when the kidneys are actually functioning normally. In this case, they are. If a patient has severe chronic kidney disease, though, end-stage renal disease, or acute kidney injury, then it becomes difficult to interpret urine studies accurately. For example, in a patient with severe chronic kidney disease, the kidney's capacity for free water excretion is reduced. Therefore, when a patient consumes free water, the free water cannot be excreted, and therefore the serum sodium falls as the sodium concentration becomes more dilute with free water reabsorption. So we admit our patient to the hospital, and we decide to measure the serum and the urine osmolality. Again, the urine osmolality will help us determine whether the process that's driving hyponatremia is dependent on ADH or not. ADH-dependent hyponatremia will manifest with a concentrated urine osm, and ADH-independent hyponatremia, as in the case of low-solute intake or psychogenic polydipsia, will manifest with a dilute urine osmolality. The patient's serum osmolality is 260 millimoles per kilo, and this confirms that the patient is truly having hypotonic hyponatremia, which we said before is the most common type of hyponatremia. Urine osmolality is 600 milliosms per kilo, and this confirms that ADH is actively being secreted by the brain and that is involved in the pathophysiology of hyponatremia in this patient because 600 milliosms per liter indicates a concentrated urine. Therefore, this is ADH-dependent hyponatremia, and we can comfortably remove from our differential diagnosis both primary polydipsia and a low-solute intake-driven hyponatremia. Let's take a moment and review a very important clinical pearl for hyponatremia. And this is the onset of hyponatremia. Patients who develop hyponatremia in an acute setting will often have very severe symptoms. These symptoms are due to development of cerebral edema and can manifest as headache, lethargy, uptundation, and eventually seizures and coma and respiratory rest and death if this cerebral edema leads to brain herniation. Often, the serum sodium is less than 20 milliequivalents per liter in these situations. However, if there is a milder case of hyponatremia or the hyponatremia develops chronically, which is likely the case in our patient, the patient has less severe symptoms. And the symptoms that do manifest are sometimes relatively vague and can include nausea, fatigue, and malaise, again, like our patient has. So we have determined that our patient has hypotonic hyponatremia. It's most likely developed over a period of time and therefore is likely chronic hypotonic hyponatremia given the symptoms that he is presenting with. 
We feel confident that this is an ADH-dependent form of hyponatremia given the concentrated urine osmolality. So now let's take a step back and talk about ADH or antidiuretic hormone and understand exactly what it does. ADH is released by the posterior pituitary under two main circumstances. The first is when baroreceptors sense low blood pressure. In this situation, the posterior pituitary believes that there is low effective circulating volume. And ADH is released in an attempt to reclaim free water and thereby volume expand the patient by reclaiming free water in the kidney. The other situation where ADH is released is when serum's osmolality rises above the upper limit of normal. In most people, this is probably around 290 to 300 milliosms per liter. When the osmoreceptors sense a rise in serum osmolality, a person becomes thirsty and the posterior pituitary releases ADH, which again will then go to the kidney, acts on receptors in the kidney called V2 receptors located in the collecting duct and causes reabsorption of free water with concentration of the urine. The reabsorption of free water aims at lowering the serum osmolality back into the body's normal range. There are also situations, rarely, but which can occur when severe adrenal insufficiency or hypothyroidism may cause the release of ADH. Finally, there are inappropriate yet physiologic signals for ADH release that can be seen in certain pathologies. And we often refer to these as non-osmotic, non-volume-mediated triggers for ADH. These can include several medications like antiepileptics, antipsychotic medications, the drug ecstasy, certain cancers, including lung cancer, other lung pathologies, brain pathologies, and sometimes the sensation of nausea or pain. Now that we have reviewed the signals for ADH release by the posterior pituitary and the role of ADH in the kidney to reabsorb free water and thereby concentrate the urine osmolality, we can proceed with further evaluating this particular patient's hyponatremia. A systemic evaluation is simple when a patient has only one single cause of hyponatremia. Unfortunately, most patients, however, have multiple reasons for potentially having hyponatremia. Hospitalized patients tend to have reasons for low effective circulating volume, which can include true hypovolemia, a low perfusion state in heart failure, a vasodilatory hypotensive state in sepsis. And this can happen concurrently with things like hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency. To start in the evaluation is to think about whether the ADH that is being released is something that we would expect in this clinical scenario or something that we wouldn't expect or an inappropriate signal for ADH release. The best place to start with that is to do a volume status exam. Patients who are hypovolemic, who have suffered blood loss or severe diarrhea, for example, driving hypovolemia, will have low effective circulating volume. And we know that this is a potent stimulus for ADH and would explain the elevated urine concentration 
If a patient appears hypervolemic, as is the situation with someone with a low perfusion state of heart failure, or for example, cirrhosis, there is also low effective circulating volume. And this too is a very potent stimulus for ADH release, leading to urinary concentration and free water retention by the kidney. If a patient's exam seems to be consistent with euvolemia, then we can think about some of the what we call inappropriate signals for ADH release that we reviewed, including certain cancers, medications, stimuli like nausea or pain. Further, it is prudent for us to rule out thyroid disease and adrenal insufficiency before making a diagnosis of the syndrome of inappropriate ADH release or SIADH. So coming back to this patient, again, he appears euvolemic. He had a TSH that was within normal limits. We can also send a morning cortisol level to assess for adrenal insufficiency We sent urine electrolytes in addition to the urine osmolality, and we found that his urine sodium was 65 milliequivalents per liter. This lends support to the theory that he is euvolemic. Sometimes in a patient with oliguria, hypotension, a urine sodium may be low, indicating a low kidney perfusion state and activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which causes the kidney to be what we call sodium avid, meaning that the proximal parts of the nephron reabsorb sodium very well. We can see this in a variety of different low perfusion states, true hypovolemia, or also hypervolemic states where there's low effective circulating volume like heart failure or cirrhosis. But in this case, the patient's normal blood pressure, lack of edema, and the urine sodium of 65 milliequivalents per liter, again, supports the likelihood that he is euvolemic. As we await the morning cortisol level, which is the other piece of data that we want to get so we can rule out adrenal insufficiency, although we think this is unlikely in this case, we also order a chest x-ray. And we order the chest x-ray because, again, we are suspicious, given the constellation of a history of smoking, weight loss, and clubbing on exam, that he may have a cancer, for example, a lung cancer. The patient's chest x-ray turns out to reveal a mass in the left hilum that measures 5 centimeters by 8 centimeters, which is very suspicious for malignancy. He then undergoes a CT scan of the chest and then a bronchoscopy with biopsy. Unfortunately, the findings reveal poorly differentiated small cell cancer of the lung, and you consult oncology. In the meantime, the morning cortisol level comes back normal, which suggests against adrenal insufficiency. Now, given the likelihood of euvolemia, we can rule out that ADH is being released due to low effective circulating volume and because of the hypotonic state, which is indicated by the serum osmolality of 260, there is no osmotic stimulus for ADH release either. There's no indication of thyroid disease or adrenal disease, so we think this is inappropriate release of ADH. And most likely, it's the cancer that is driving the ADH release. We can diagnose this patient with SIADH due to primary lung cancer. So now that we have a diagnosis, how do we proceed with treatment for this patient's hyponatremia? 
Well, the first very important principle in the treatment of hyponatremia is to determine whether we think that the hyponatremia is acute or chronic. We said already that in patients with acute severe hyponatremia, they tend to have mental status changes, which can include lethargy, somnolence, sometimes bordering coma and seizure. In the case of such severe altered mental status, a patient's hyponatremia needs to be treated promptly. And typically, that is going to involve a hypertonic sodium solution, which we call 3% saline. This often has to be done through infusion, through a central venous catheter, and should be done with very close monitoring in an ICU setting. If, like our patients, there are very mild symptoms and intact mental status, then this is most likely chronic hyponatremia, and therefore the treatment should be slow and steady and careful. Reversing chronic hyponatremia too quickly can lead to devastating consequences, such as the syndrome called central pontine demyelination. Now that we know distinguishing the severe symptomatic hyponatremia, which tends to be acute, versus the chronic hyponatremia, which tends to have less mental status changes and should not be treated as swiftly, we can proceed with discussing several specific tactics for treating the chronic variety of hyponatremia. Let's start with the hypovolemic hyponatremia. In the case of hypovolemic hyponatremia, ADH is being secreted by the posterior pituitary because low effective circulating volume is being sensed. So the treatment for this is to restore euvolemia. And typically that occurs by administering an isotonic saline solution. As euvolemia is approached, ADH secretion will decrease and the urine osmolality will become more dilute as free water is mobilized, and therefore the serum sodium will rise as that free water is excreted. In this case, we just have to be careful that the serum sodium does not rise too quickly. Typically, in the case of chronic hyponatremia, we do not want to raise the serum sodium more than 6 to 8 milliequivalents per liter higher rates of correction, particularly in the setting of chronic hyponatremia that is very severe, meaning less than 120 milliequivalents per liter, can put a patient at risk for the devastating consequences of the central pontine demyelination syndrome. In cases of hypervolemic hyponatremia, where there is often low effective circulating volume, like in the case of decompensated liver cirrhosis, or decompensated systolic heart failure, treatment for the hyponatremia will involve free water restriction. And in some cases, like for example, in heart failure, diuresis may help. Also, in the case of heart failure, using medications that improve cardiac output will also help. In the case of euvolemic hyponatremia driven by hypothyroidism or adrenal insufficiency, Correction of these underlying disorders is indicated. And finally, in the case of euvolemic hyponatremia where the diagnosis is SIDH, fluid restriction becomes a very important cornerstone. And there are also some other tactics that we can use to help raise the serum sodium. 
As an adjunct to fluid restriction in patients with particularly severe cases of SIDH, we'll often give increased solute to help with free water excretion in the kidney. An example may be administering oral salt tabs. Oral salt tabs are often given with a loop diuretic. Purpose of the loop diuretic is to decrease the medullary interstitium's concentration, which, if high, can increase or augment free water reabsorption under the influence of ADH. By using a loop diuretic, blocking reabsorption of solutes in the ascending loop of Henle, the medullary interstitium becomes less concentrated and therefore that can mitigate some of the free water reabsorption that happens in the collecting duct under ADH's signal. This coupled with the increased solute through the oral salt tabs will cause free water excretion to increase and therefore the serum sodium to rise. Another option that's becoming more popular is oral urea. Again, the idea is increased delivery of solute, which will mandate some obligate free water excretion in the urine. There is also a class of medications that block the V2 receptor where ADH binds. And these medications are called the Vaptans. In the United States, the Vaptan that is available is Tolvaptan. These again will block the V2 receptor preventing ADH from acting in the collecting duct and thereby force more free water excretion. So there you have it. Our patient has a diagnosis, unfortunately, of lung cancer, which seems to be driving his hyponatremia through a syndrome of inappropriate ADH release. We will treat him with fluid restriction and consider other adjunctive therapies such as increased solute intake through oral salt tabs with possibly a loop diuretic or maybe oral urea, or in a very, very severe case, we could consider the use of a Vaptan like Tolvaptan. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.